And today I want to talk about Jesus the Hidden. And this, this message might not be for everyone today, but it will be for everyone someday. I think that there are times in our walk, there's times in our walk with Christ, in our relationship with Him, especially as time goes on and we're exposed to more of life, that we do deal with doubts and we deal with frustrations and we deal with questions. And so that's why today this message is important for all of us. And some of us here might say, well, this doesn't apply to me. Things are going great with Christ. I mean, I am at a high level this morning, but, but stay with me and take notes and engage this morning because we all are going to come to a place where we realize that our faith in Christ is more than an emotional experience. Our faith in Christ is more than just uh, something that we feel. It's something that we believe and we own. And I want us to start today in John chapter 20 as we reflect again into the post-resurrection appearing of Jesus. And we see that in verse 24 of John chapter 20, Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But they are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Can we pray together this morning? God, we've felt your presence. We've declared who you are through song. We've rededicated ourselves, Lord, through uh, the words we've spoken out of our mouth this morning. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would make us stronger today by what we learn from your scripture. I ask, oh God, that you would cause all of us, Lord, to realize that our faith is centered on your character, not our emotions, not our feelings. Even when you are hidden from us, Lord, we know that you're always near us. And we thank you for the name of Jesus and what he is. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, this message is for when we doubt Jesus. And we doubt him not necessarily with our faith, but sometimes with our emotions and with our thoughts and with our intellect. Many of us have encountered a time where we doubt Jesus and we have to understand that it's in those times, it's our humanness that doubts him. It's not the spirit that God put within us, but it's the human nature uh, that is corrupted by sin and influenced by worldliness that doubts him. But nevertheless, those doubts can be real and they can be uh, challenging and they can shake our faith if our faith is built on anything less than who he is and his name and his character. Now, for a long time, everyone uh, kind of used Mother Teresa as the example of 
earthly righteousness. In fact, I remember um, when when a witnessing technique someone shared with me one time. They said, "Okay, you know, you could you could rate people from one to a hundred, and number one is like a mass murderer, a, a someone who killed somebody, and a 98 is Mother Teresa." And the point of the story was, it doesn't matter if you're ranked number one or number 98, you can never score a hundred. That was the point of that exercise. But for the purposes of today's message. I, the point I'm trying to make is this, is that in for the last 20, 30 years, she's been used as kind of the example of earthly righteousness. And, and rightfully so. I mean, Mother Teresa was an amazing woman. In 1948, she went to the poorest place in the world, one of the poorest places in the world, to Calcutta. And there she, without any money, without any funds on her own, she opened uh, a school uh, to educate those Children who were in the slums of Calcutta. In 1950, Mother Teresa started a new order in the church called the Missionaries of Charity. This is amazing if you think about her life. Because the Missionaries of Charity, what their role is to do, if you become one of those missionaries, what you're going to do is love and care for the people no one else will love and care for. What an amazing example of Christ's love, a personification of earthly righteousness. By the 1990s, there were over a million missionaries in the in the um, charity, the mission, missionaries of charity that she begun. This one woman's vision, this one woman's passion, this one woman's love for Christ really changed the world and really uh, was one of the key factors that started this uh, social compassionate gospel that is taking place in the evangelical church. Here it is, a woman we've used as an example of earthly righteousness. Last year, when they released her diaries, something that was discovered that no one really knew is that for many, many years, she struggled with the presence of God because she didn't always feel the presence of God. And in one of the letters that she wrote to um, the Reverend Michael Van Der Peet, she, she said it this way, and you can look at the quote with me said, as for me, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and do not see, listen and do not hear. The tongue moves in prayer but does not speak. I want you to pray for me that I let him have a free hand. Here it is, the woman that we have used as an example of a righteous woman, of, of if anyone's close to God, uh, someone who has the ability to move in the compassion of Jesus and, and to uh, touch the, those the, the untouchable and to reach those no one else would reach. It's moving in the character of Jesus. And yet, as you see from this quote, she said, the emptiness is so great. I look and do not see, listen and do not hear. The tongue moves in prayer but does not speak. I want you to pray for me that I let him have a free hand. This woman had times of doubt or, or times of emptiness, or maybe it's not even doubt, that's not a great way to put it, but a time where Jesus seemed hidden to her, that he wasn't just a parent. He, he wasn't, it wasn't an emotional feeling that she was saying, pray for me because I'm praying and I don't feel anything. And the truth is this, that somewhere along our pathway, we're going to be challenged that way too. We're going to be challenged and realize that our relationship with Jesus cannot depend upon emotional feelings. 
And it cannot depend on how uh, we sense things or feel things. That It is faith in who He is, not how we feel. See, the truth is this. There's things about Jesus that I don't understand. There are. I read the Gospels, and there's some things that I'm still trying to reconcile. I'm still trying to understand. I'm still trying to figure out. And that used to make me really nervous. If I couldn't figure something out about Jesus, I got really nervous. Because I grew up in a faith system where everything had to be figured out. Everything had to have an answer. Everything was an equation. You do this, and this will happen. You don't do this, then God won't do this. Everything was an equation. And what ended up happening is that in that type of environment, there was a lot of blame going around. Why haven't you done this? Why didn't you do this? There was a lot of shame going around. Because you didn't do this, this has happened to you. And the truth is this, that kind of faith is based off rationality. It's based off human reason. That there has to always be an explanation. And I used to be real uncomfortable about my questions with Jesus because I felt like I had to figure every single thing out. Can I tell you today, this is my profession. You guys pay me to figure this stuff out. And as someone who has been through theological training and who basically I'm supposed to come up with answers every week, can I tell you that I stand before you as a brother in Christ and tell you I still don't have all the answers about Jesus? But can I also tell you this, is that I'm more comfortable today with my relationship with Him, with the questions that I have, than I was when I was always trying to make up answers to make myself feel better. See that there is a comfort in knowing that the God that we serve is so much higher than us. His ways are higher than us. His thoughts are higher than us. That we don't have to figure everything out. We don't have to figure out every equation. We don't have to dot every I and cross every T. There's a comfort in knowing who He is relationally and knowing that we're on a pathway of growth with Him. And as we grow, we'll learn more and more and more about Him. And someday when we see Him face to face, then the shadows will disappear and we will know Him fully. We will know exactly who He is. And so now, this sense of questioning or the sense of doubt or the sense of not having every, every answer, it brings me comfort to know that there's a God that's bigger than me. There's a God that's more powerful than me. There's a God whose ways are higher than me. And I trust in who He is, not my ability to understand who He is. And I love Him. And He's close to me. The truth is this, and I want you to write it down, is that Jesus does not defend himself. You know, we're always trying to defend Jesus. We're always trying to win the argument. We're trying to win the debate. We're trying to package Jesus in a way. But we're trying to do something for Jesus that he didn't do for himself. Turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, uh, as we look at when Jesus went before trial, starting in verse 55, says the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. I'm in verse 56. I hear, I know I, I went fast on you guys. Turn to Mark 14 and then I went fast, but I slow down. I'm killing time up here. Now I'm in Mark 14, verse 56. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him, 58. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days I will build another not made by man. Yet even their testimony did not agree. 
60, then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? And here's a key verse, verse 61. But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Look at that in verse 61. Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. You know, Jesus doesn't defend himself with earthly rationale or with human reason. He stands alone in who he is. He stands alone and he does not defend himself. And can I tell you that Jesus is still under attack? We live in an atmosphere where Jesus is attacked, he's ridiculed, he's misquoted, he's misunderstood. The character of Jesus has been an attack in the last 100 years like no other time before in human history. And the intellectuals and the uh, centers of thought and the think tanks will do everything they can to misquote Jesus, to... Uh, to try to disprove him, to try to attack who he is. And the whole time, Jesus, the crucified and risen one, he stands silent and does not defend himself. And he stands silent for who he is, just as he did in front of the Sanhedrin. Because Jesus Christ is the name above every name. He is the Lord above every Lord. He is the king above every king. And he doesn't have to defend himself. He is who he said he is. He doesn't defend himself because... His name is higher than any name he could be accused of. And so there's times that in his sovereign plan, Jesus has remained hidden. And Jesus has remained hidden, and he's chosen to let himself be disrespected and misunderstood. He's chosen in this lifetime for him to do that, because here's the reason why. This is a sub-point. Maybe you can add this to point one. Jesus is not defending himself. He's revealing himself. That's what even when Jesus was here on earth, those who accused him, those who, who spoke falsely, those who misrepresented him, he didn't defend himself. He revealed himself to those whose hearts were ready to receive the gospel message. Jesus is revealing those to whose hearts are ready, who the Holy Spirit has come and prepared their hearts. And if you think about it, before you gave your life to Christ, the message of Jesus didn't mean anything to you. But when the Holy Spirit came and began to prepare your heart, when the Holy Spirit became and he, he started to soften your heart, then all of a sudden, though you were blind to the message, blinders came off and you could see. Though you didn't understand the message, wisdom came to your mind and you understood what it was about Jesus. Can I tell you that did not come from you, that came from him? It's the Holy Spirit who goes and he prepares your heart. He prepares your life. He prepares your circumstances. It's His grace that draws you in. It's His grace that even gives you the ability to see who He is. So Jesus is not in the habit of defending Himself to the world. He's here to reveal Himself to the world. And so we as His people come before Him today and we're humbled because He has chosen to reveal Himself to us and show Himself strong. And Jesus Number two, I want you to write it down. He's not intimidated with our doubts and questions. I think that's an important thing for you to realize about the hidden Jesus. The truth is this, questions make people nervous. We, we get really nervous when people start asking a bunch of questions. People start asking a bunch of questions and it's like, hey, back off, man. Just, just chill out, relax. We, we don't like questions. But can I tell you that in our faith, Jesus is okay with your questions. See, Jesus never condemned Thomas. Thomas had to see. Thomas had to feel. Thomas had to be there. And Jesus never 
condemn Thomas, you know what he did? He revealed himself to Thomas. Miraculously, he showed up and said, Thomas, I'm here. I'm here for you to touch. I'm here for you to feel. I'm here for you to, to know that I am real. The truth is this, that what we question can make us stronger. What, when we challenge the assumptions that we have, and we challenge the assumptions and we own what we question, then doubt, when it comes in, we've already questioned it, we've already wrestled with it, and we know what we believe. The things in my life that I have challenged, the things in my life that I have questioned and I've settled with, I've gone through the questioning, I've gone through the challenging, and I've said, this is what I believe, this is why I believe it. Those are the things that can't be shaken in my life. Those assumptions that I never challenge, those things that I never analyze, those thoughts that I never question, those can be shaken. Because someone smarter than me can start talking about it, and they know more than I do. But the things that I own, the things that become who I am, those things you can't shake in my life. Can I tell you that Jesus allowed questions? And that's what I love about Jesus' life is that he actually sat with tax collectors and with notorious sinners, and he had dinner parties with them. That's a great thing about dinner parties, because once you share meals with people and share time with them, and you're in a relaxed setting, then you're able to really discuss the big things of life. You get beyond the surface, you know, like, you know, the surface thing, you know, between the second and third song, hey, how are you doing today? Right? You know, that surface thing that we do here at church? When, when, when you have a meal with someone, you get beyond the surface and you get to who people really are. That's one of the reasons I'm going to ask all of you to, to be open to being in the 242 group so that you can get beyond surface and get to know someone and get to be close to someone. And here it was as Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9 says Jesus went on from there and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. And for many of you know through Bible history that that was a terrible place to be. I mean, tax collectors were considered by the Jews traitors. They were considered them as someone who have uh, working for the enemy and who have totally betrayed the Jewish faith. So he says to Matthew in verse 9, Follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors... And sinners, I love the way the NIV quote that, came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Let me tell you why he ate with tax collectors and sinners. Because he loved them. And he wanted to get to know them. And he wasn't intimidated by their lifestyle. And he wasn't intimidated by their questions. And he gave them the greatest component of love, which was time. He spent his time with them. I love the fact that we serve a God who has time to go out to dinner and to sit and to discuss and to help us with the big questions of life. Jesus will take your questions. He may not be there physically to answer them, but His presence will be with you and will help you settle your doubts and will help understand who you are and will walk with you on the journey. You see, so many people, when they have questions and when they have doubts, they check out and they think Christianity is not for me or walking with Jesus is not for me because I'm still struggling with this. Can I tell you that Jesus wants you to take your struggle and to take it to Him? He wants to sit with you. He wants to be with you. He wants to stay with you. 
But the one thing he doesn't want you to do is he doesn't want you to leave him. You can be a dinner guest of Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Going on in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus said something. He said to them, talking to religious leaders, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show the way of righteousness, and you do not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Look again at verse 31 of Matthew 21. I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Jesus knew that because he spent time with them. And those who were the greatest sinners, he loved them, knew them, answered their questions, and was with them. Here's the third thing I want you to know today about the hidden Jesus. We can learn from Him. Is we don't have to feel to believe. You know, there's times when it doesn't feel good to believe in Jesus. There are times, unfortunately, because the enemy's grip on our society and our culture and our media and everything, is there's a lot of times, and in fact, most of the times that serving Jesus, we feel like we're on the wrong side. We feel we're maybe on the losing side. That's what the enemy wants us to think. And that's why it's so important for our college students that we provide a ministry for them and encourage them. Because can I tell you that in, when you go to college, then even Christian colleges, your faith will be challenged like never before. Never before will, will your faith be challenged. And you can come out of college stronger than you've ever been if you stay grounded in the Lord. But there's times when those will take, those uh, in authority, or, or not really authority, but teachers and professors and those in the media and those in pop culture, they'll use their influence of their personality and their education to cause us to feel like we're on the wrong side and we're on the losing team. And that's not something any different than the disciples felt. Can you imagine what the disciples felt when I referenced a couple of weeks ago when, when the crowd deserted Jesus? Jesus looked at them and said, you want to leave too? How did the disciples feel when the religious leaders who they were trained under, the religious leaders who taught them, the religious leaders who they respected were now thinking the disciples were lunatics for following this Jesus? How do you think the disciples felt when this God of all creation, the one that they believed was the Messiah, was getting beaten up by the Romans, who they thought were the dirty Gentiles? He was being beaten. The God of all power was being mobbed. How do you think the disciples felt when he hung limp on a cross, lifeless, and on Saturday afternoon, after 24 hours, he was still in the grave and he was still lifeless. They might have felt like they were on the wrong side. They might have felt like they were on the losing team. But can I tell you that when you know who Jesus is and you know who his character is and you've been with him and you know who he is, you don't have to feel right to have faith because you can believe that the same Jesus who said, I'll be alive in three days, is also the same Jesus who says, I'm coming again. It doesn't matter what the world is going, what's going on in the world. It doesn't matter what someone in the classroom says. It doesn't matter what the media says. It doesn't matter what the cultural trends are. I'm coming again. I've gone to prepare a place for you. And we believe not because we feel, but because we know who he is. We believe because he has tested himself and he has made himself true to our lives. And so we don't have to feel spiritual and feel excited to believe. If Jesus has chosen to, to remain hidden in certain aspects of our life and certain circumstances, it doesn't mean that our faith is any less 
or any anything less than what he has for us. Can I tell you that if you're dependent upon your feelings to follow Jesus, then your faith is only as strong as what mood you're in. If you're dependent upon your feelings to follow Jesus, then your faith is only as strong as what side of the bed you woke up on that morning. Our faith in Christ is based off His character and His Word, and there's no negative feeling that can shake what God has done in your life. When you realize that the power of the cross and the power of the resurrection and the power of reconciliation that comes through Him has been settled in your life, has been established in your life, then no negative emotion, no bad circumstance, no disappointment can shake what God has done. No negative feeling, no negative circumstances because it's on Christ, the solid rock I stand, and all other ground is shaking, is sinking sand and shaking too. God is so strong that what, He cannot be shaken. He cannot be ch- shaken by our moods. He cannot be shaken by depression. He cannot be shaken by anxiety. He is established. He's an unchangeable and He is what we anchor to. You know that God is still real when pastors fail us? God is still real when the institutional church disappoints us. God is still rule, is still uh, real and it doesn't change when Christian personalities disappoint us because He does not change. It doesn't matter what the emotion is that we don't have to feel to believe. We believe in who He says. And this is what I love. I love it. Here's the last thing I want you to write down is that the great thing about Jesus the hidden is that we are blessed when we believe what we can't see. Can I tell you that I'm looking in front of some people today that are blessed. Come on up, guys. You are blessed. And and Jesus said it there. Let's go back to John chapter 20. Jesus said in verse 21, uh, verse 29, excuse me, because you have seen me, you have believed. He said that to Thomas. Now look at this, because this applies to your life. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's you. That's me. We're blessed because though we've not seen Jesus physically, we believe. Can I tell you this? Is that sometimes we think that the super spiritual, always smiling, never doubting, high energy believer in Christ are the ones living in the blessing. You think, look at that person. They're always smiling. I love Jesus. Jesus is great. And I'm, I'm never down. And, and they, and we think in our mind, well, they must be spiritual, but we're not. Because they're always up. They're always, they're always excited. Can I tell you that there is a blessing for those who believe without seeing? And I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say too, that there is a blessing that applies to those who believe but don't feel it. I believe that. Because you believe because of who Jesus is, not how you feel. Some of you know Christ is real. You believe He lived on this earth. You believe He's the Son of God. You believe He's the Messiah. But you've never had those super spiritual feelings, so to speak. And you think you're unspiritual. You think you're unspiritual because everyone else seems to have some kind of ecstatic emotion. Can I tell you that feeling it doesn't make you spiritual. Believing it makes you spiritual. And maybe the fact that you believe in something you've never felt makes you more spiritual. Maybe you're the most spiritual because you don't feel, but you still believe. Now, I said at the beginning of this message, this might not be for everyone. And maybe some of you might leave this place and say, I don't know, I don't know if I agree with this, and 
all this. But can I tell you, someday when you're ready to give up, someday when you're down, someday when, you know, that your emotions are down and the enemy wants to come in like a flood and say, you're not like everybody else. You're not spiritual. You don't get it. You've done something wrong. Blame, shame. It's all coming in your life. Can I tell you, that's when I want you to go back to who Jesus is. I want you to put your faith in who he said he is and what he's done for you. And that's enough. That is enough. 